It is, of course, a little bit of an oversimplification, but there are essentially two ways to, to get ahead in this world, especially in, in regard to the workplace and, and our careers. One, of course, is to, to really bust your tail, to, to work hard, to excel, to, to learn more skills and to apply your abilities so that as you do so, you, you set yourself apart from the rest of the crowd and, and others can't help but take notice at your ability and your skill. And that's one way to, to set yourself apart. The other way to get ahead in the world is to eliminate the people that I just described. So if you know that you are at the bottom of the totem pole, if you know that quite simply you just aren't as gifted or talented as somebody who might be a little bit higher up on the totem pole than you are, well then you focus all of your energy on doing whatever it takes to tear them down, to discredit them, to remove them. And so by default, if you focus your energy on that, eventually if you can eliminate and get rid of the people in front of you, then by default you are at the front, you are ahead it's pretty clear which category those associates or co-workers of Daniel would fall into as you heard our first lesson this morning. Daniel set himself apart with excellence from the rest of the crowd. And they weren't too happy about it. But King Darius took note of it and Daniel told us exactly what he had planned for somebody with such exceptional abilities. In verse 3, we're told that now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. He was going to make him the top dog. But what's missing from this account is we don't see any party being planned by his co-workers for Daniel's potential promotion to celebrate him. In fact, they were quite distraught over it. I don't know why necessarily. Maybe, maybe his role overseeing everybody would mean that their roles and responsibilities would have changed. Maybe it was just pure envy or jealousy over Daniel that they had it out for him. Maybe they were irked that Daniel, remember, who was a foreigner in exile in this land of Babylon, now the Medes and Persians under Darius, they didn't want this foreigner to one-up them and, and have this prominent place. So they plotted and they, they schemed. We're told in verse 4, At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Try as they might to dig up some dirt on Daniel, they couldn't. His skills, his ability were exceptional. His ability to administrate, to, uh, to orchestrate and oversee things was unrivaled, unmatched. And not only that, but, but it came to his, his character and integrity. They couldn't dish up any dirt whatsoever on him. Now, now compare that today. Today it's relatively easy to find anything on anybody. All you have to do is, is go back the last decade and, and check somebody's tweets or their social media posts or, or their podcast appearances and you won't have any trouble finding something somewhere that will offend someone. But they had no such luck when it came to Daniel. Daniel's reputation was pristine. 
Now, before we go a little further, I want to kind of consider what it was that actually drove these co-workers of Daniel to pursue his demise. Again, we're not actually told in this account, but, but it's kind of surprising because undoubtedly they must have had pretty nice lives. They were above average, right, serving in that capacity, whatever role it was as an official. Certainly their pay scale and their recognition came with those roles. So what was it that was driving this animosity toward Daniel? Why wasn't it enough? Because it never is enough if you're chasing status and success. In fact, you might recall that refrain, never enough, from a popular movie not too long ago, a few years back, The Greatest Showman. In that movie, the main character who was making a name for himself, he had enlisted the help of the greatest singer of the day and promoted her on tour. And she had a beautiful voice. And the song that she sang had that refrain over and over again, never enough. And not only was it, in a sense, uh, her expression of realizing even when she had reached the top, it was never enough, but it was supposed to also kind of serve as a warning to the main character, Hugh Jack, played by Hugh Jackman, who was so intent on pursuing more status, more success, always more, that it was never going to be enough. That's just how it works. We understand. We, we all admit it, sometimes a little more willingly than not, but that's a natural desire for all of us, isn't it? We want to matter. We want significance. We want to be liked by other people. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. In fact, Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs even enlists that to be significant, to, to know that I matter is one of those needs that we all crave. So the question is, when do we cross that line from being satisfied with that versus pursuing more, versus chasing more status and success? And for us, if you are a Christian, then do you wrestle with that idea of saying, no, my lot in life is to be happy and content with where I am, and, and I shouldn't be driven, I shouldn't be ambitious to want to do more. Am I, as a Christian, just supposed to settle? Well, what's the answer to that struggle? Well, it depends really on what you're looking for when it comes to pursuing or chasing after status and success. Because if you are chasing after those things because that is your identity, that is your sense of self-worth, you, you are fighting an uphill battle. You are going to be supremely disappointed. Well, the good news, I suppose, is that there are many others traveling that path with you. Many others whose association um, and their achievements and their accomplishments are the basis for their, their self-worth or their identity. The bad news, however, is that once you get on that train chasing success and status, you're never going to reach your destination. Because that train doesn't stop for drop-offs. It only stops to pick us up because there is no destination where we ever arrive at status and success. It's always just a little bit further. See, when my value is tied to views, other people's opinions, or how others view me, I'm always going to be disappointed. 
Today it's, it's likes. Tomorrow I, I get unfollowed. Uh, I, I have the, the, the praise uh, of this group of people today, but that one individual whose attention I crave doesn't even notice me. It's so fickle. People are so fickle. One day I, I'm loved and praised, and the next day I'm not. I, I receive compliments and then cutdowns. You will be disappointed if, if your sense of self-worth is based on other people's opinions of you or achieving some status or success. Let's return back to, to Daniel because we didn't cover everything that was known about Daniel in this account. Yes, he was an exceptional administrator. God had blessed him with, with uh, amazing organizational and, and skills of, of oversight. But that wasn't the only thing that we were told about him. He also showcased his relationship with, with his God. And his co-workers also took note of that, realized the conclusion that they drew in verse 5. Finally, these men said, we'll never find any basis for charges against the man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Now stop and realize how amazing that is, that they recognized his relationship with God a foreigner in a foreign land who would have very easily been tempted or inclined to say, I'm not going to ruffle any feathers in this foreign land. I will just go along to get along. Whatever the local customs are, whatever the religion is, I will roll with the punches and I'll call it good. But Daniel, patiently, gently, in an unobtrusive way, made it clear that he was absolutely devoted to his God. And yes, there were times where he took advantage of, of his relationship with God that, that he did, I suppose you could say, put his foot down when he demanded, or demand isn't the right word, when he asked if his diet could be different than everybody else on the court. But even that, he didn't do that in an offensive or abrasive way, but always gently. And so these officials knew Daniel's relationship with his God. That, that so stood out to them that it was their only hope for his demise. Do people, do people look at us, if you are a, a Christian, do they look at us and see that same devotion? Or do they see your Christian faith as a, a means for debate? Do you talk about all of these Christian qualities compassion and love and kindness and forgiveness and gentleness and patience, but it's other people who only hear you talking about that but don't actually see that in your life. Is your Christian faith uh, an excuse for you to dig in your heels and let others know when you are supremely defended or offended by the wickedness and, and the wrong in this world? And that's the only time that your Christian faith comes out to play. It's when you want to make sure that somebody else knows how disappointed or disgusted you are with some sin or some wrong in this world. Now, if that's how others know that you are a Christian, if that's what they know of your faith, let me ask, how many have, other been, have actually ever been convinced by that approach? Daniel didn't use his faith to to beat others over the head with it. 
Daniel didn't dig in his faith, especially when this decree had been given that he had had to pray only to Darius. Daniel didn't say, well, that is ridiculous. I'm going to show this government who's boss. I'm going to dig in my heels. I'm going to have some petitions signed. We are going to go and we're going to protest and we're going to be activists because this isn't right. I'm not going to allow my rights to be stripped. No, Daniel, in fact, willingly received the name that was given to a heathen demon god and didn't say anything about it. He was forced to learn a new language, to be re-educated, and you don't see Daniel saying, Harumph, no way, I'm a Jew and I won't stand for this. You know what you see from Daniel? Humility. That is content to put his faith into practice without needing to needle and push the buttons of the world around him. Listen to verse 10. This was the characteristic of Daniel. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Daniel didn't play the victim. He wasn't outraged of these laws in in some other nation. He didn't try to to put up a stink. He just went about his business, continued to conduct himself, carry out his his belief in the one true God, and his co-workers took notice. Ultimately, he did so to his demise. Now, here's the thing. What Daniel did, just going home and praying, seems rather rudimentary, doesn't it? But I wonder if it's actually not much more radical than that in our world today. What if we as as Christians, what if we took that approach of Daniel? What if instead of being offended by everything and pointing out all that's wrong with this wicked, awful, horrible world, what if instead we focused our attention on our relationship with God and growing our faith in Jesus Christ? What if instead we... We woke up and and appreciated the freedom that we have on every Sunday morning to gather together with my brothers and sisters in Christ and not have to worry about getting shot or attacked or taken to prison on my way to church or surrounded when I'm there. What if instead of just knowing that I have this privilege of prayer, that that no decree or law is ever going to keep me from being able to talk to my God one-on-one anytime, what if I actually took advantage of that? and routinely, regularly, throughout the day, talk to God in prayer? What if instead of coming up with all sorts of of excuses not to attend the many Bible classes that are offered, I actually looked for reasons to attend instead of avoid? Now, if we did all of these things, what difference do you think it would make? Do you think you would be better off if you didn't allow the world so much space in your head? I think you would. I think we all would. And it even paid dividends for Daniel, didn't it? King Darius took note of it. King Darius held him up. King Darius was still pulling for him. You almost expect, don't you, when you read that account, that when he hears uh, the, the report about Daniel, that he was going to be livid, that he was going to be furious that Daniel would defy him that way. But he's not. Daniel made such an impression on him that he actually did everything he could to try and rescue him. 
What if today we took that approach of, of Daniel? Which is really what today is all about. And this kickoff Christian Education Sunday, as, as we call it, it reminds us to, to take stock in our relationship with God. Where are my priorities in my life right now? Where do I spend my time? What is, what is important to me? Do those things reflect, like Daniel, a, an unwavering desire to cling to the Lord at all costs? This Wednesday, our, our school kicks off another, another school year. And, and I would contend that aside from decorating our homes with Jesus' grace and forgiveness and lavishing that on, on, on our, our, in our marriage and, and on our parenting and on our children, the second best thing that we can actually give our kids and do for them is to enroll them in our school. And I'm not saying that just to toot our, our horn here, although I would hold up our, our school and our teachers and, and what is taught here against anything else. But here's why I say that with such confidence. I've been around long enough, and I've experienced myself, to know what Jesus is able to do in the hearts of those who sit at his feet. To know that, that when they graduate from our school, our prayer, our hope and desire is that every graduate would walk away absolutely beyond the shadow of a doubt, confident of how deeply loved and cherished they are by their Heavenly Father. To know that, that, that whatever they have learned in this school will certainly set them up for success in the next academic level, but far more important than that, that they realize that God's opinion of them, God's view of them, Jesus' love for them is going to give them a status that no social media account ever can. It's going to give them a significance that not all the praise of every man, woman, and child in the world can ever offer or parallel to know the depth of God's love for them in Jesus Christ. That is what we want for our children, but that is what God wants for you as well. And here's his word that backs that up from 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. And I know it's not easy to believe that, is it? To hear those words of God and say, wait a minute, you mean me? You mean that I am your child? That you have lavished your love on me? No, no, not me. I know my past. I know the wrong I've done. I, I'm not one of those churchy people. I, I've not really been a great Christian. I don't think that God is really talking to me. I know how often God has been on the back burner in my life. He can't mean me with those words. I know that, that God can see right into my heart and expose all of the hypocrisy and everything that I think is hidden from others. He sees it all. So I know it's hard to believe these words from 1 John. So John goes a step further and he tells us how we know it's true. In verse 16 he says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. He says that's how you know. You don't have to guess. You don't have to surmise, but you know what love is and God's love for you because Jesus laid down his life for you.
because Jesus made the perfect sacrifice that knows all of your sin, but just as assuredly has paid for all of that sin. And when we compare that, that view that anybody in the world could have of us compared to how, how God views us, quite frankly, there is no comparison. Facebook can give you likes. Jesus gives you life. Instagram is a great way to, to gain followers. Jesus gives you forgiveness. Your manager might give you a raise. Jesus gives you his resurrection. Somebody else might pay you a compliment. Jesus gives you completeness. He says, you are enough for me to love. Do you know why? Because God's love for you isn't based on your performance or lack thereof. It's based on what Jesus has already done for you. And here's the neat thing, dear friends. This just like the law of the Medes and Persians, cannot be repealed. It will not be repealed. God will not change his mind about his love for you. The proof is at the cross. The proof is in the empty tomb. What you do tomorrow, what you did last month, whatever your past, your present, your future is, doesn't matter because God doesn't choose to cherish and love you deeply on the basis of you. He cherishes you and loves you deeply on the basis of his son, Jesus. So let's stop. Stop chasing after worldly status and success and cling to, to what we already have and who we already are that the Father has declared to us through Jesus. You are his dearly loved children lavished with the love of the Father. Amen.